0: Now, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John's Gospel chapter 19, John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible but you would like to follow along, you can take the Bible out of the chair in front of you and turn to page four hundred excuse me nine hundred and five, page nine hundred and five. So what I want to do with you today, and by the way, Pastor Rob, as you saw in the announcement, will be back next week starting a new series in Colossians. And I know I speak for all of us when I say we'll be glad to have Pastor Rob back in the pulpit, but it's been a privilege to uh, occupy his pulpit for the last week and this week uh, uh, as well. And knowing that uh, today was kind of a transitional Sunday, moving from Nehemiah to the book of Colossians, realizing also that uh, this would be the time where we uh, celebrate the Lord's table, I thought we would, in the uh, words of that beautiful hymn written by Elizabeth Clefane almost 150 years ago, stand beneath the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The week of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ began on what you and I call Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, fulfilling a prophecy that had been written 500 years before by Zechariah in the ninth chapter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. A thousand years before Jesus came on that triumphal entry, Uh, King David prophesied that in Psalm 24, the king of glory would come into his temple. Gabriel, a thousand years later, announced to a young virgin up in Galilee in Nazareth that she would house in her womb the son of the highest who would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Herod the Great heard about this news, and he had all the Jewish children two years and under slaughtered because he heard that the king of the Jews had been born. Thirty years later, Pontius Pilate had Jesus standing before him in one of those mock trials. There were six of them. And he asked him, are you a king then? And Jesus affirmed his kingship saying, you say rightly I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I came into the world. And then about another 60 years passed by and we come to the last book of the Holy Scriptures, the book of the Revelation. And we see the John the Apostle writing, now I saw heaven open and he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the common thread that is woven through all these verses is the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we stand beneath the cross of Christ, we see once again it's no different because there it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's what we often call the play card. Others uh, term it the superscription, but we know it. it's that piece that hung over the head of Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and that's where I wanna focus your attention with me this morning. First of all, noting the reasons for the play card, and when we look at the reasons, there are really three of them, with the first one being the primary reason, and it's the statement of the crime. So let me pick it up in verse 17 of John 19, and you follow along if you would please. The first reason for the the, the purpose of the play card was simply the statement of the crime. What you read in verse 19 was undoubtedly written by Pilate immediately after the sentence of death was conferred upon the Lord Jesus. This was part of the procedure of the time. when after the criminal was sentenced to death, a processional would be led to the place of execution. Justice was swift. There was no time for appeals. There was no lingering waiting for the execution. You are sentenced to death. The processional begins. John identifies the place of execution as Golgotha. That's the Hebrew. If you're reading a parallel passage, you find in Luke that he calls the place Calvary, and that's the Latin term for it. If I understand the historical uh, aspect correctly, that the criminal would be led from the prison to the execution site with a quartorian of soldiers around him. I want you to think in the form of a diamond. So you have a soldier in front of you, a soldier to your right, a soldier to your left, and a soldier behind you. In front of the person at the point would be the captain of the squad. He would be called the centurion. And he would lead the other soldiers with the criminal through the streets of Jerusalem outside the walls to execute the, the, the convicted criminal. The centurion would also be having the play card. And he would be showing it to the people who were lining up watching this procession. And so Jesus is now being led away as a convicted criminal. Now you say well what was the purpose behind the statement of the play card it was really as i understand it twofold. Number 1 it was to say this that crime doesn't pay. You are aware of the terrible suffering that the great I Am went through before he was nailed to the cross. The prophet Isaiah, before that great 53rd chapter, in the last part of 52, he says his countenance, his visage, his appearance was so marred that he didn't even resemble a human being. And his form beyond that of the children Of men. The scourging would leave strips of flesh hanging off his body. He was beaten and pummeled almost to death. And as he's led to the place of execution, the idea was this. If you commit the same crime, the same punishment will come to you. Crime doesn't pay. That's the idea. The second purpose, as I understand it, was the Roman sense of fairness of justice, from which we get many of our judicial laws, by the way. Because what this did is the processional took place through the crowded streets of Jerusalem. It allowed for the opportunity for somebody watching the criminal and seeing the statement of the crime, for somebody to come forth and say, I know that's not true. That man is not guilty and he would be given a hearing. It was kind of a lax chance for the criminal. So those are the two purposes uh, behind the play card itself. But the main reason is to give, let the people know why this criminal was being executed. The interesting point of course here is that no crime is written for Jesus committed no crime, the sinless son of God. Pilate repeatedly said, I find no fault in him. He washed his hands. He said, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. His wife had a dream. She went to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. All the placards said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. There's a second reason and it's what we simply call the sarcasm of Pilate, the sarcasm of Pilate. So the primary reason for the superscription, namely the clarification of the crime, was nullified because Jesus had committed no crime. But Pilate saw this as an opportunity to take his last shot at the Jewish people whom he hated intensely. If you are a student of history and you read the history behind Pilate and his relationship to the Jews, you'll find that he hated them and they hated him. And if you've ever seen some of the documentaries done on TV, that comes out very strong. Pilate is already under investigation by Caesar. He's about ready to get the axe. He was unstable and secure, and that comes out vividly in the handling of the trials of the Lord Uh, Jesus Christ. He goes in and out of the courtroom time and again. And if you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you will find that at seven different times, Jesus is exonerated by Pilate. I find no fault in him. And yet he delivers him over to be scourged, thinking that might satisfy the bloodthirsty Jews, which it didn't then delivered him to be crucified. What a worthless coward. What a politician looking out for his own neck instead of truth and justice. The title Pilate wrote over the cross was an expression of his disdain. Be wise. The Jewish people kept pressing his back against the wall. They would not let him go. No matter what Pilate said seven times, he's innocent. They kept pushing him and pressing him. And it's like Jesus, Pilate is saying to the Jews, take this, you Jews. You say, well, what's so bad about the title, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews? Three thoughts I put down. Number one, obviously, the Jews did not regard Jesus as their king. That's the obvious one. Pilate said back, remember in verse 14 of the same chapter, he said, Behold your king, and their response was what? We have no king but Caesar, whom they hated as well. Secondly, worse than that statement was the king of the Jews. Because now if he's their king, what does that make them? That makes them the subjects to the king. And yet now they are subject to a crucified criminal who is hanging on the tree, and by hanging on the tree was evidently cursed by the very God of the Jewish people. You say, now wait a minute, was Jesus cursed by God? Yes, he was. You and I know the truth of Galatians where it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. For cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And when Jesus hung on that cross, on that tree, he bore the sins of the world, of your sins and mine. And all this prepares us for the bread and the cup that reminds us, in his body, he bore the curse of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is because he was made to be sin for you. He bore your sins. He bore my sins, every one of them. And he was cursed by God as our sin bearer. Thirdly, notice in verse 20 it says this, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Greek, so that everyone could read it. Then many of the Jews read this title, and Pilate saying, take this, you Jewish people. And it was done in a cruel kind of mockery to get back to them for what they had done to him. This brings us to the third reason, which of course isn't in the scriptures explicitly stated, but it's certainly, we can see it, and it's the sovereignty of God. As vile and personally responsible and reprehensible that Pilate was to God, nevertheless, God will use this worthless politician to accomplish his greater purposes. The placard was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. James Boyce of 10th Presbyterian says, We should be glad that it is so presented, for it is John's way of saying there is no respect of persons with God. Paul has written this truth theologically. John demonstrates it practically, showing that God offers salvation to the Greek and the Roman, as well as to the Jew. Granted, we know that Pilate put this message over the cross to irritate the Jews. But God did it to send a gospel message, perhaps the first one there on the cross, to the entire world. It's an amazing thing that in the sovereignty of God, he can use a, a sinful, wicked man like Pilate to become his amanuensis and in that first century he tells the world what David declared in Psalm 24, what Gabriel announced in Luke 1, what Herod the Great feared, what Jesus affirmed, what Pilate wrote, and what John the Apostle declares. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords. Three reasons for the play card. Let's look at the three results now of the play card. The results of the play card and I find three of them. I'm going to pick it up in verses 21 and 22. And the first result is the anger of the chief priest. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews... But rather this man said, I am King of the Jews, and Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now the religious leaders of the Jews did not like at all what was written on the placard, and it was made them very angry. And they wanted the message changed, get this, from a statement of fact to a claim. And this makes all the difference in the world. The one is an absolute statement. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's a fact. It's a statement. The Jews said, don't put, just add a couple words, put at the very beginning that he said, I am the king of the Jews. That one would make him an imposter. He thinks he's the king of the Jews, but he's really a crazy lunatic. He just said it. We know it's not true. So if you go to Pilate, ask him to change it. And this is the first time and probably the only time you'll find Pilate with any courage at all. Seven times he had the opportunity to stand up and be a courageous man and do what was right. And he failed every time. And finally they put a a pressure point upon him to change what was written. And he says, what I have written stands written. And it's interesting, this is the last of a series of amazing utterances by Pilate. And the only time he showed any courage. Results of the play card, the anger of the chief priest. Number two, the apathy of the soldiers. Listen to verses 23 and 24 or follow along with me. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they've divided my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. And then it's like John, right after he writes it, he adds these words, so the soldiers did these things. Now these were professional executioners. This is what they did for a living. They knew how to crucify a criminal. That was their job description. And yet little did these witless, hardened soldiers, probably with the blood of the Son of God, not even dry yet, realize they too were fulfilling scriptures, scriptures that were written 900 years before they were ever born. Psalm 22:18 is the prophecy, they divide my garments among them. Now there were five pieces of clothing that Jesus would have had when he went to the trial and to the cross. First of all, there's the turban, the headpiece. Secondly, there's the outer garment, what is called oftentimes the robe. Thirdly, for his feet, there'd be the sandals. And fourthly, the belt that would hold everything together. So the turban, the sandals, the outer belt, and the belt itself, the outer garment, and the belt itself would be called the outer garments. Then there was a fifth piece of clothing that is called the tunic. And in Jesus' case, it was a seamless garment from the top to the bottom. I can imagine someone reading this and saying, who cares that it was sewn from the top to the bottom, that it was a seamless garment woven up, down, outside, inside. Who cares how it was put together? And I say, God does, and so should we. The Old Testament, the garment for the high priest was made of linen, and it had to be without seam. That was the symbol of his purity. Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, he fulfilled every jot and till of every prophecy, the prefigurements in type as well as verbal prophecies that related to his first coming and eventually his death. Some count as many as anywhere from 320 to 350 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Some say as many 30 were fulfilled on the day of crucifixion. Another has said in order for this to come about in one person, let's just use 300 as a round figure, 300 prophecies fulfilled in one person, the chances of that would be 1 in 80. Five with a hundred zeros afterwards. In other words, absolutely humanly impossible. But not if you're God and if you're sovereign and if you're in total control. Jesus has to fulfill the promise. By the way, let me just make another note for you on this tunic. Did you notice ever how that it immediately goes from the crucifixion and then he looks at his mother Uh, who is standing there with John, and he says, Behold your mother, behold your son. It seems like an abrupt change when you're looking at the soldiers, then all of a sudden he speaks to his mother. And possibly the thing that kind of brings that, that together, the soldiers casting lots in his care and love for his mother, is the tunic, because they say the mother actually made the tunic for the son when he reached bar mitzvah. So probably as Jesus is looking at the tunic, then his mind turns to his mother, who probably made that tunic. And then he shows his loving care for her and commits her into John's care. So one of the benefits for the soldiers then, who crucified the criminals, was they were able to take possession of the clothes of the crucified one For those being hung on the cross. Now the soldiers are faced with a dilemma. There are four soldiers. And there are five pieces of clothing. So the scriptures say the Bible. The Bible says they made four parts. Meaning they took the four outer garments. The turban. uh, The sandals. The belt. The outer garment. Four of those. And each soldier got one of those. But then that left the tunic. Which would have been the most precious garment that was left. So how do you decide who gets that? Well, it says they cast they cast lots for the tunic and thus not knowing. Think of it, not know it, have no idea. They're fulfilling a scripture written back in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. I tell you, my friend, when Jesus hung on that cross he is ticking off. One prophecy after another. He's taken it off. Everything is under his control. He is not the victim. He is the sovereign great I am we sang about. And he realizes that if one prophecy goes broken, then the whole law is broken. And if the whole law is broken, throw your Bible out, go on home and do something else with your life. It's as simple as that. And he's just about ready to commit his spirit to the Father. There's got to be one more. He says, I thirst. And so he fulfills that prophecy from Psalm 69. It is finished. He chose the second he would die. It doesn't even say they killed him. No, he commended his spirit to the Father. Only Jesus can control That absolute sovereign time, when to be born, when to die, in the perfect will of God. Third result, let's close with this, then we'll go to the table of the Lord that Pastor Josh is going to lead us. It's the atonement, the atonement of the thief. John doesn't record about the thief, so if you want to go to a parallel portion, you go to Luke chapter 23. And as I often say, you always save the best for the last. So this, this is the best, the atonement of the thief. Now what we're going to see here, if you look at verse 38, you'll notice there's an inscription written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now we come to the criminals who were hanged, and blaspheming him. Now here is another prophecy being fulfilled. And the prophecy is Isaiah 53, 9 and 12, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Notice that Isaiah, now writing about 700 years before the time of Christ, he knew exactly that Jesus would be crucified with transgressors. That would be the thief on the right and on the left. How do I know that Jesus being crucified between two thieves is a direct fulfillment of prophecy? Listen to what Mark writes in Mark 15, 28. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, it's interesting, if you put it all together, when the two thieves are hanging, one on the right, one on the left of Jesus, that as they're hanging up there, both of them are mocking Christ for three hours. Both of them are railing, blaspheming the Son of God. And then something happened in that last three hours, whereas one of the thieves' heart is totally turned to the Lord. I mean, if ever there is a genuine deathbed repentance, it is here. Listen to Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed and saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the others answered him saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Assuredly as I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Both thieves railing against the Son of God, but the one's heart is turned. What was it that turned that thief's heart to repentance and faith? I wonder if it wasn't the two things. Number 1, he's watching Jesus hang on the cross. He's watching him say, "Forgive them, they don't know not what they do." He's watching his forgiving heart, his loving concern. And he's he's watching that has never seen anything like it. And I think the second keep in mind, he's looking up at the superscription, the play card. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Just think if that play card, if Pilate had given in and put in there those two extra words, he said, he is the king. Just say, that might have put just enough doubt in that thief's mind. But the fact that it was stated as a fact, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and seeing his forgiving heart and life may have been what God used to bring him to faith in Christ. And so all of a sudden he says, Lord, remember me. When you come, what? Into your, who has a kingdom? Only a king. Jesus, the king. Lord, and he calls him Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So again, God even used Pilate's sarcasm to bring about a dying man's conversion. What a response from our dying Savior. Savior. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, amen, amen. Every so often, Jesus will say, amen, amen. In the old King James, it comes out, verily, verily. But it's like an, an emphasis. Listen up. I just love it. Amen, amen. And then it literally says, today, you, me, in paradise. What grace, what mercy, what love. A thief had no hope. There's nothing he could do. He's in his dying moment. In seconds, he will be in eternity. Just like you. Just like me. He knew it, we just don't know it. Friend, don't die without Christ, I beg you. Don't go into eternity without the Lord. He loves you. He took the curse of God that you and I deserve. So let's close it. Three thoughts here. One of us is too far gone to become a Christian. One is never too far gone to become. I've qualified that, and I say as long as he senses the working, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the statement by itself, one is never too far to becoming a Christian is probably not an accurate statement. The scriptures speak of a man who hardens and hardens and hardens and hardens his heart until the writer of Proverbs says he is Beyond remedy. Beyond remedy. The heart is so hardened, he can't respond. Don't harden your heart. You see, the burden of a preacher is this. I realize this morning I am the instrument of life or death. I am the instrument of bringing the message, and how you respond to that message determines whether you leave with a softer heart or a more hardened heart. If you feel any kind of wooing in your heart, any kind of draw, any kind of quiet voice saying, resist no longer, now's the hour. Please, I beg you, trust Christ as you sit there. Number two, God uses various means in bringing in people to himself, and two of the most effective tools of evangelism are the printed page and the loving example of the believer. A loving example of Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. If you ever and I go out to eat together, you will see that I will always leave a gospel track. Sometimes I, I forget. I leave him in, in my soup pocket or in the car, and I feel so bad. Because it just if I give out a million of them, and only one's heart is touched, it's worth it. You never know where the printed page goes, do you? Just handing somebody a booklet, a book, gospel track. And living the life of a forgiving Christian. God uses that. Ultimately, of course, it's his word that brings Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. Number three, all that God wants and will accept from us is a simple believing faith. All he said was, Lord, remember me. Another man, simple words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Another man, even more simple, Lord, save me. And it's, what it tells us is that there's no mechanical formula. It's an issue of the heart, of the heart being prepared by the Holy Spirit, open and receptive to the truth. Once you say, Lord, remember me, save me, God be merciful to me, a sinner, one should never doubt his instant acceptance into the family of God like that. You could come here today and you could be 20 years old or 40 or 60 or 80, and for all your life, you've rejected, but now you say, Lord, remember me. Instantaneously, you pass from death unto life, just like that thief on the cross. One was saved, two thieves. One was saved so that none should despair. One was lost so that none might presume. I close with a picture I I look at often. I think of it a lot. I may have shown it at a time or two. I'm not sure. But it's a picture of my last trip to Uganda. And in this picture, that's going to come up on the screen hopefully, you're gonna see uh, two, uh, two different kinds of inmates. You're gonna see about 800 over here in a yellow uniform. And you're gonna see over here about 120 in a white uniform. And when I was speaking, I was about as far away from the prisoners as the front row right here. So I could catch their eyes, I could see the expression. And the ones in the white uh, there that you see on the right, 120 of them, those were the people convicted of a capital crime, they are gonna be executed. They'd be shot to death if they were military or they'd be hanged as a civilian. And as all these men standing, lifting their hands up, worshiping God, I could see the expression in their eyes. And I thought to myself, what if I knew soon I was facing the gallows or the firing squad? They knew death was imminent. Justice is swift in Uganda, very swift. And I knew as I talked with these men individually and hugged them and loved them afterwards, I knew I never would see them again. The next time I'd go back to Uganda, they'd be gone, executed. But like that criminal on the cross, what a message to proclaim in your dying moment you can respond and trust Christ and be redeemed. What a message. Message for them, message for you, message for me. Let's bow in prayer. If you're here today and you'd say, Harry, you know I don't know that I've, I've never trusted Christ, I've never said that simple, Lord, I believe. Remember, Christ suffered the curse you and I deserve. So I beg with you, I plead with you as you sit right there with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Now would be a precious time to say, Lord, the best way I know how I trust you as my Savior. Please do that. Please do it right now. And whatever words are meaningful to you, but that convey the thought you are turning to Christ alone who suffered on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and rose again. Right now, do that. And if you do, as Pastor Josh will lead us in a moment, you will be ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper because you will remember his body, his blood for you. Please do that. And if you make that decision, would you please let one of us know? I won't embarrass you right now. I won't call you out. I just would really love to know and others would too. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your ministry to our hearts and lives. Doing only what you can do that will matter for eternity. And bless our time now, this very precious, serious time of remembering our Lord dying on that cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Amen.